Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now. So boys and girls, make sure you've got a Bible in front of you. We're using the Blue Pew Bibles, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to read from verse 18 down to verse 27. And it's on page 867. So if you open the Bible, and you'll see numbers at the top of the page, you need to find page 867. And if you find that page, you'll find our Bible reading. So it's Luke chapter 9. And we're reading verses 18 down to 27, page 867. And we're going to start at at verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. And as we read, we need to remember that this is God's word to us. And it's really important. And we need to listen carefully to it. So Luke 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father, and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. And we give God thanks for his word to us this evening. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. You'll find the passage that we read together earlier on page 867 of the Pew Bibles, page 867. Uh, We're going to think about Luke 9 together this evening. Before we do that, uh, let's pray briefly for a moment. Father, we thank you for your care for us. We thank you and bless you again for the fact that you hold us fast, that you you will never let us go. We thank you tonight for your word as well. We thank you that it is a living word and that it's a word that helps us to live for the Lord Jesus and to live faithfully for him. And we pray that as we look at this really foundational passage, this really well-known passage, that you would speak to all of us and that you would help us in our walk with the Lord Jesus or you would challenge us about where we stand before him tonight. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. What is Christianity all about? Who is Jesus? Did he really exist? What did he do? Where is he now? How should we respond to him? What is Christianity all about? We can start by saying what Christianity is not. We can say that Christianity is not about following a set of rules. Lots of people think that it is, but it stands apart from all other major religions There are rules and laws in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but you don't become a Christian by following the rules and living in a certain way. 
Christianity is also not primarily about having head knowledge about God. It's important that we know the scriptures. It's important that we can articulate clearly the gospel. But you don't become a Christian by simply knowing things about God. And again, lots of people make that mistake. They think that attending church services, church meetings will simply make them acceptable before God. At the root of all of that, we need to remember that Christianity is not all about us. The Christian faith is is God-centered and God-focused. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has worked to redeem a people for himself. What, what is Christianity all about? It's not about following the rules. It's not, it's not simply about knowing certain information. Having thought about what it's not, we can also say what it is. We can do the negative, but we also do the positive. Christianity is about loving other people. We were, we were thinking about that this morning with our tear fund speaker. Christianity is about meeting with other people who share your faith. Christianity is about prayer and speaking to God and communing with God. And all of those things are good and true, and we could add more to that list. But what is Christianity all about? If you could, if you could summarize it in a sentence, what, what would you say? I've summarized it in a sen- sentence, and here's the most succinct answer I think I can give. Christianity calls you to respond personally to Jesus, to trust in his perfect sacrifice, and to radically give your life to him. Christianity calls you to respond personally to Jesus, to trust in his perfect sacrifice, and to radically give your life to him. That answer, that sentence, is what we're going to be thinking about tonight. We're going to be turning our attention to the heart and center of the Christian faith. Well, one of the greatest and constant dangers facing any church anywhere is that it assumes the gospel. It has been said that there's a certain trajectory that churches follow as they decline. They begin by knowing the gospel and talking about the gospel and applying the gospel and knowing the key truths of the gospel. But somewhere along the way, at a certain point in their history, they assume the gospel. And that's a really dangerous place to move to. To assume that you know the gospel is to say, in effect, that you don't need to be reminded of the core truths that were initially so dear to you. Having assumed the gospel, churches then move to forgetting the gospel. So know, assume, and then forget. They become like the church at Sardis in Revelation 3. They look good externally and have a good reputation. But Jesus' view of them is this. You have the reputation of being alive but you're dead. Say all of that to point out what, that what we're going to be looking at tonight is always helpful and always good for us. In any given sermon, we'll consider what Jesus has done for us. But tonight we're stripping things right back and we're going to look at the heart and center of the Christian faith of what it means to be a Christian. Before we go any further, let me say a word or two about where we are in this series. Uh, we've been coming and going in Luke, uh, from Luke over the past couple of years This is our third time in it. We've returned to Luke in September and I've got through chapter 8. And by the end of tonight, we'll be halfway through chapter 9. Just to say, we're probably going to pause this series again at this point. Enrollments are coming up over the next few weeks. We're going to do another big question and then it's Christmas. Uh, We might come back to Luke in the new year, but we might also leave it. I haven't quite decided. Uh, Last time we were in Luke, Luke, we looked at the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, that was the Taylor Swift sermon, if you remember, the night that I revealed that I'm a Swifty, I'm still a Swifty. But Luke keeps his material moving, and in verse 8, we have something of a timestamp. 
Clearly, some time has elapsed since Jesus performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000. How much time? We're not quite sure. But what follows is a very significant conversation between Jesus and his disciples. This passage and these words of Jesus take us to the heart and center of the Christian faith. We've said that Christianity calls you to respond personally to Jesus, to trust in his perfect sacrifice, and to radically give your life to him. Our points this evening are based on that simple sentence, and we're going to break it in three and see three things. Jesus requires a personal response. Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. Jesus demands a radical commitment. Let's look then at this really challenging part of the Bible, praying, praying that we wouldn't fall into the trap of simply assuming we know this, and therefore we don't need to hear it again. First of all, Jesus requires a personal response. Look at what we read in verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? The the beginning of verse 18 is a really fascinating insight into the heart and devotion of Christ. When we read of Jesus praying, we're, we're given a window into his devotional life and his relationship with his father. Here's a question that might make you think. What was he praying for? What was, what was Jesus praying about? I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that he was praying that his disciples would have clarity about who he was. That, that, that interpretation is supported by what Jesus says to them when they join him. He asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus is praying perhaps that his disciples would come to understand who he is. The disciples reply in verse 19 with the same three options that had confused King Herod so greatly, John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet of old. All of those three options would have been seen as positive options, positive opinions. Popular opinion of Jesus was was clearly favorable. People liked him. People followed him around. But Jesus isn't concerned with public opinion. He wants to get down to business. He wants to have a personal conversation with his disciples In verse 20, he presses them for their personal conviction. Look at it with me. He says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Uh, Peter, the disciple's spokesperson and general loudmouth, answers, the Christ of God. Uh, Other translations have his response as God's Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed. In, In the Old Testament, kings were anointed for the tasks to which they were called, God had promised that he would one day send an heir of King, of King David who would sit on, his, on this throne and, and rule in a greater kingdom than his ancestor had known. The, the title Messiah was consistently used to refer to the expected royal Davidic figure. But Peter's declaration then that Jesus is the Messiah is bold and clear. He's saying that Jesus is that long-awaited anointed ruler. What's even more astonishing, though, is Jesus' response. He affirms and embraces what Peter says. In Matthew's account of the same story, Jesus answers Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, Peter, God has revealed this to you, but you have got it spot on. You have hit the nail on the head. This actually makes Jesus unique on the world stage. He wasn't shy about acknowledging who he really was. 
He's unique in that he was someone who thought of himself in the highest terms, but was a compelling and attractive presence. Sometimes when people think of themselves in the highest terms, they come across as really arrogant and really unpopular, but, but Jesus just wasn't that. He was compelling and attractive. People wanted to be around him. They, they, they wanted to listen to him. Out of all the religious thinkers in human history, none makes a claim, or in this case, allows a claim to be made about himself like Jesus. What we can't miss here, though, is that Jesus requires a personal response. He wasn't satisfied with finding out what popular opinion about him was. Crowds followed him, but when it came to it, he always made things personal. Who do you say that I am? I was listening to someone on this passage earlier in the week and they said something really interesting. I don't know when the talk was recorded or how old it is, but the person said that in the United Kingdom, 20 million people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 20 million people. That's about 40% of the population. But under 8% of the population go to church and even less are committed Christians. Now my guess is that those figures have changed slightly But it's interesting, isn't it? People can affirm who Jesus is. They can say that he's the son of God. They can affirm and recite intellectual, intellectual, verifiable, historical truth, but but fail, fail to trust him personally. But who do you say that I am? All of us need to have an answer to this question. Answer it in your own mind now. Who do you say that Jesus is? Christianity calls you to respond personally to Jesus. How are you responding to him tonight? Have you trusted him as your savior? Are you ignoring him? Are you living for him? C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. You must make your choice. Jesus requires a personal response. Secondly, Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. Look at verses 21 and 22. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We might have expected that the follow-up to Peter's declaration would be a triumphant celebration and a worldwide broadcast of the big news. But instead, Jesus warns his disciples not to tell anyone what he has just said, not to tell anyone this truth. That this prohibition is only temporary. Once Jesus has been raised from the dead, the disciples will be empowered and expected to take the message about Jesus into the world. But it is surprising at this point. Jesus says, no, don't tell anybody. We're not told exactly why, but the next thing he says makes it seem like he doesn't want word to get out in case people become confused about what kind of Messiah he is going to be. The expectation was that the Messiah would come from God as a mighty military commander. 
The Messiah was expected to come and crush the Romans, crush all oppressors, and take over as God's king. Now, there is an element of truth to that. One day, Jesus will exercise authority over the whole world. But, but if people started believing that at this point, it would be really dangerous. Je- Jesus makes it abundantly clear that his messianic ministry won't begin with political triumph and military conquest. Instead, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is God's Messiah, but the path he will travel isn't one of quick glory. It's the path of terrible suffering. The the, the paradoxes are stark. Jesus is talking about the Messiah and the Son of Man, both titles that speak of glory and power in terms of the suffering servant of Isaiah. The, The most glorious one will suffer greatly and then be rejected and killed not by the enemies of Israel, but by the leadership. He will show his power by allowing others to have power over him. There's also incredible love behind Jesus' statement, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must. It's just a simple little word. Must. He, he must do it. He must suffer. He must go to the cross. He's saying that himself. But why is he saying it? Because we need him to. We can't pay for our sin. We we can't deal with the wedge between us and God. He must suffer and he must pay the price for our sin because we can't. Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice and we must trust in him. There's not a good work that you can carry out. There's not another person who can have faith on your behalf. There's not an amount of church services that you can attend to be right with God. Jesus has provided a perfect sacrifice on the cross and we must trust in him. One, Jesus requires a personal response. Two, Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. Three, final point, Jesus demands a radical commitment. When you confess Christ, you embrace his dying on the cross for you, but you also accept the reality of the cross for yourself. The Son of Man must suffer, and in light of that suffering, an obligation is placed on anyone who wants to be his disciple. Jesus demands a radical commitment. Let's read verses 23 to 26. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. A disciple of Jesus must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, daily, and follow him. We often make the mistake of thinking that self-denial is a little bit like giving up chocolate or, or not having dessert after a meal in a restaurant. But self-denial is much more than that. It's making Jesus our master and removing ourselves from that position. Our modern view of the cross as a piece of jewellery or as a decoration in a church building has robbed Jesus' words in verse 23 of much of their scandal. In Jesus' day, a cross was a disgusting thing. It was like a hangman's noose. It created dread in people. People feared it. 
It was a cruel method of execution. When Jesus says that anyone who wants to be a disciple of his must pick up their cross, he's speaking in the starkest of terms. The, the, the Romans required the condemned to carry the horizontal piece of their cross to the execution site. A man who was carrying his cross was on a one-way trip to death. Jesus is not so much talking about physical death here, although it is possible that following Jesus in this radical way could cost you your life. It does in some parts of our world today. But instead, probably for us, Jesus is talking about dying to your old way of life and crucifying the old self-centered way of living. Here's what the radical commitment Jesus calls for looks like. It means putting him first. He is number one. It means putting others second, and it means putting ourselves last. In that order, Jesus first, others second, ourselves last. Following Jesus is, is like a kind of death because every area of a disciple's life is radically changed, radically affected. Our finances, our ambitions, our sexuality, our entertainments and relationships must all be brought into conformity with the wishes of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, uh, as a follower of Jesus, we make the daily choice to, 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 to pick up our cross and every part of our day will be impacted by that choice. Now, if we take Jesus' word seriously here, we have to admit that much of what passes for Christianity today will eventually be revealed as a counterfeit. The only kind of Christ following is self-denying, cross-bearing discipleship. It's the only way. We're not saved by taking up our cross. We're saved because Jesus took, took up his cross for us. He doesn't call his followers to anything less than, than he has done for us. J Jesus demands a radical commitment. It also appears that he would have been a terrible salesman. In these verses, he goes against every principle of effective evangelism and every popular church growth strategy. Any marketing expert would have told Jesus that if you want people to follow you, you should emphasize the benefits of being a disciple and trying to draw away from whatever cost there might be. But Jesus leads with the cost of discipleship. You see, in God's economy, losing one's life is actually the path to blessing. If someone wants to save his life by refusing to pick up the cross of discipleship, he will find in the end that he has lost it. In one sense, it appears that to be a Christian is to have a throwaway life, but to throw away your life for Christ is to find life forever. Je Jesus tells us to look at the bottom line, at the debits and the credits, the assets and the liabilities. What profit is it actually for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? There's a story from history about the great King Charlemagne. Uh, around the year 1000, officials from the Emperor Otho opened the king's tomb, and what they found was quite something. They saw treasures that they'd only dreamed of, gold and, and silver and so on, and they saw the skeletal remains of King Charlemagne seated on a throne, his crown still on his skull. But they also saw a copy of the Gospels lying in his lap with his bony finger resting on a simple text. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You can gain it all 
gold, silver, riches beyond your, your wildest dreams. You can gain it all. You can gain the world. But what does it matter if you miss out on Christ? And as if all of that isn't challenging enough, we come to verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let's, let's play this out. Let's run the tape. This is a sober warning from Jesus. If we confess him before men, he will confess us before his Father. If, we say, if I say to my friends, I love Jesus, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm prepared to follow him whatever the cost, and if I mean that and I do that, then Jesus will say to the Father, I love Stephen, he's mine. But if I'm ashamed of Jesus, if I try to have a secret faith and I don't want anybody to know in case they think I'm a fool or they think I'm weird, then Jesus will say to his father, Stephen, yes, I, I know who he is. And father, I'm ashamed of him. Can you imagine that happening? Can you imagine anything worse? Jesus saying that he is ashamed of you. Verse 27 closes this section of Jesus' teaching, and it's a verse that has been debated and disputed. I read four interpretations of it this week. There are probably more, but the point is simple. In the, in the light of the imminent arrival of Jesus' kingdom, it is madness to continue living as if this present world were the ultimate reality. Je Jesus demands a radical commitment. Are you radically committed to him tonight? If you're a disciple here, if you're a disciple, here are some questions that you might want to ask of yourself after we're finished. Once you're home, but what am I living for? What am I hoping to gain by my actions today or by my actions tomorrow? How long will those things last? And what would it mean to lose my life today in order to save it in the end? Jesus requires a personal response. Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus demands a radical commitment. What, what is Christianity all about? Who, who is Jesus? Did he really exist? What did he do? Where is he now? How should we respond to him? What's it all about? Christianity calls you to respond personally to Jesus, to trust in his perfect sacrifice, and to radically give your life to him. We've got to come back to these things again and again and again and again because the danger is that we assume that we know the gospel and that puts us on a slippery slope to forgetting the gospel. For those of us who know and love Jesus, for those of us who have trusted in him and who have followed him for, for many years, some of you here tonight have been Christians since you were young. For, for, for those of us who know and love Jesus, this passage remains and will forever remain deeply challenging. We so easily take our eye off the ball, so to speak. Our gaze so easily slips. We so easily get into a rut when it comes to following Jesus. We put down our crosses rather than picking them up. This passage should shake us. It should rattle us. It should put us back on the path of obedience to our Lord and Savior. Well, what if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian? What if you're watching online and you're not a Christian. It's great that you're here, it's great that you're watching, but you've got to answer this fundamental and most important question, but who do you say that I am? 
Luke wrote his gospel under the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. And he's crafted it with the Spirit's help. The question, who is this, has been peppered through the early chapters of his gospel. It's really clever. Let me give you a few references. 422, 5.21, 7.19, 7.49, 8.25, 9.9. Every time, who is this? Who is this? Who is Jesus? Who is this man? In 2.11, angels give the correct answer. In 4.34, demons give the correct answer. In chapter 9, we're waiting to see the answer the disciples give. Tonight, we're waiting for your answer. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that I am? Can I put it to you tonight that if you're not a Christian, that you need to do something about that? The most challenging yet exhilarating thing that I have ever known in life is to try and walk with Jesus Christ and to follow him. It's not a walk in the park to be a Christian. How can it be? Jesus didn't promise that it would be. He makes it very clear that it will be at minimum very awkward and at most extremely difficult. But in coming to know him, in coming to trust him, in giving our lives and losing our lives in him, we're gaining spiritual riches beyond our wildest imaginations. Jesus requires a personal response of you tonight. Who do you say that he is? Answer it honestly. Jesus provides a perfect sacrifice. He has died on the cross to pay for our sins. Are you relying on what he has done? And Jesus demands a radical commitment. Are you willing to die now so that you can live then? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this very basic and simple passage. A passage which takes us to the heart and center of the Christian faith. A passage that reminds us that Jesus requires a personal response from all of us. A passage that reminds us that Jesus has provided a perfect sacrifice for us and a passage that reminds us that that Jesus demands radical commitment not not half-hearted commitment radical daily cross-bearing commitment father we pray that tonight as those who have trusted in you as those who have followed you of those who are walking down that path of discipleship that you would stir us and help us to be faithful followers of our Saviour. And we also pray that you'd speak to those who haven't yet made that personal commitment to Jesus. We pray that by your Spirit, you would convict of sin tonight and draw people to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.